Promises of God. Continuing that series, we're looking in Romans 8.28, if you've got a Bible in whatever version, paper, digital. Well-known passage. Let's read this together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8.28, super famous verse. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's pray just together as we come to God's word. Father, this is your body, your people, joined together, listening to your word, inspired by your spirit, inflamed by your spirit this morning, speaking into our hearts, our lives, our passions, our um, blessings, and also the hard things. So help us to understand this verse and your promise in a deep, meaningful way, that we would be transformed into the likeness of your Son. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know if uh, many of you have ever played the game of Go. Who's ever played the game of Go? Anybody? Please, somebody. Oh, we have one, two. <laughs> okay, there's like three. We have three people in here. If you include me, that would be like four people who played the game of Go. I used to play it a fair bit when I was uh, late teens, early 20s. And it's a game that was created in China 200 or 2,500 years ago, maybe 3,000 years ago. Believed to be the oldest board game in existence. It's incredibly simple. It's got little black rocks, little white rocks. All you do is place them on a grid that's 19 lines by 19 lines, and you just place them and you try and capture territory, and the one with the most territory at the end wins. Simple as it could possibly be. But like many things, the more simple something seems, the more complex it sometimes is, and the more layered it is in reality. And the millions, maybe billions of people who play the game of Go in the world claim that it's like playing four chess games at once. Don't really know if that's true or not. I played it more like checkers, so <laughs> not really sure. But today we're looking at a promise of God that reminds me of that. It makes me nervous, quite honestly, to speak on this passage because it is so layered, so simple, so loved, often so misunderstood. And it's a bit scary because it slides into some of the most difficult theological questions of our time in many different ways, and it would be incredibly easy for us to slip into those. So there's questions about the text itself. There's questions about God's election of people, God's offering or willingness to have free will in people, the problem of evil, suffering, sovereignty, sanctification, the Holy Spirit, all those things kind of come home to roost in this one simple, powerful promise. And I'm going to try and stay focused, but I'm just giving you advance warning. This is not an easy listening sermon, nor is it really a light summer picnic. And probably you're going to listen to some of this and you're going to say, yeah, but what about that? And you're going to ask this question, and it's going to be a really, really good question. And I'm not going to answer it, 
because there's too many things that could be asked out of this, and that's why Dr. Larry Perkins is here. And so I want to encourage you to be sure that you go and talk to him immediately following the service. That he's right over here. The line can start there. You can say, was that true? Because I'm not sure. And when you're saying, I'm not sure, sometimes I'm not sure either. And so I would encourage you to go home and think about this because it is one of the best-known promises. And many of us learned this verse a long time ago, maybe the second verse we ever memorized after John 3.16. And if you're a bit older, you learned it in the King James Version, which sounds like this. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. I memorized it a long, long time ago. It's confusing because when you read the newer versions and you have the older versions, it whole messes up that whole memorization thing for you as soon as you start down that line. The NIV says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And you start to run into some of the little problems that occur in this simple verse because the subject in one of them, the King James, is all things and the subject in the other one is God. And there's a pretty big difference between those two things who's the subject of this verse. But the meaning of it stands pretty firm. And it's a verse that's worthy of our memorization, of us learning well. But more than that, I think it's worthy of being properly understood. So you're going to have to hang in with me while we try and do that this morning. So I want to start with a positive reality that's sometimes lost when we look at this simple verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. All things includes things you love. It includes great things, positive things, incredibly wonderful things. Every good gift we're taught in 1 Timothy, every good gift is from the Father above who delights in blessing his children. God gives good gifts, and we talk about in all things work together for good. The good things of your life are part of that. So don't leave that out of this picture when you're looking at this verse. So that includes nice summer vacations. That includes sunny days, beautiful puppies, which I have, a generational puppy, by the way. Excellent morning coffee, McDonald's egg McMuffins, positive opportunities, pleasant family times, great worship, a good church, all gifts of God, all of which are referenced in this verse under those all things. Probably doesn't include Apple computers. Also, the Canucks trade history or any coffee made in aluminum urns. None of those things are included here. Okay, so we know. But God uses every good gift in your life, everything you love that you know is a gift of God that makes you grateful. God uses all of those things to achieve his purposes, and we ought to be extremely grateful. Extremely grateful. In all things, good things, God is working for the good of those who love him. But, which is why in the title slide, it says God will work it out, and I had a little yes, but in small print underneath. There's another more common application of this verse. So for a long time, maybe still is, this verse has been the go-to verse for anybody dealing with a bad thing that ever happened, whatever that bad thing is in life. And the frequent interpretation goes sort of like this. God is doing good no matter what it looks like. God is doing good no matter what it looks like, whether that's directly or indirectly, God's plan is being achieved and it's good. This thing that happened to you, whatever that event was, it was good. And if you're to voice any other viewpoint in an evangelical church in North America, then at points you would have heard you know, that you lack faith or at worst you might even be a heretic. 
because you're not really getting God's promise to you. And it's an understanding of God's sovereignty that concludes that one, God's in charge, two, he can do whatever he wants, three, he's good. If you do the math on those three things, the conclusion is unmistakable. What happens to Christ's followers is always good, and God takes the bad and makes it good. That's the interpretation. And while the math there is not terrible, I want to tell you the premise is. So is it terrible in terms of how we interpret this. First, because it's not what it means. And second, because it heaps pain on people going through terrible things already. It just piles it up, makes the pile bigger when that's what we say. So I don't want to be completely obnoxious, but it really is my spiritual gift, so deal with it. (laughs) Talk to Larry. He's not obnoxious. So... But we have to stick our ostrich heads so deep in the ground that they come out at Port-au-Francais, which is an island just off South Africa, which is the geographic opposite of where Langley is, if we're going to conclude that everything that happens in our life is good, that God made it good. But we sometimes say that, don't we? We sometimes think that. And I challenge you to be with a mother and a father who have newborn twins and sit with them in the delivery room for eight hours while they die and then tell them that it's good. I challenge you to do that. Or to talk to a family that's experiencing the pain of a loved one who has mental health issues, who's living on the streets of the Lower East Side, drug addiction problem, and when you're there and they've told you this story, just hug them and tell them, this is an example of the goodness of God. Or explain to somebody who struggled to honor God through the pain of cancer how the cancer itself was good. It was good. Or look at the picture of the man and the daughter that were washed up on the Rio Grande River at the end of June, whose wife is now back in Mexico. The funeral, I believe, was this last week. And tell them that was an example of how good God really is. So please hear me when I'm saying from this verse. We are not a cult. Followers of Christ are not people who ignore reality, and our faith never, ever trivializes or minimizes the pain of real people. Never. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. We believe that sin is very real. We believe that it is massively destructive, that it is the result of original fall of mankind, that we are sinners by nature, by choice, that sin hurts us, that sin hurts the people around us, that sin even hurts the physical world around us, and would continue to do so on and on if it were not for the interceding work of Jesus Christ. And you can pick any wide-scale world problem you want, pollution, terrorism, world wars, sex trade, climate change, refugee issues in Venezuela. Take any big issue you want. They are all rooted, ultimately, in a sweeping way in sin across time. Or look at the specific problem in an individual life, whether it's a broken marriage, a health issue, conflict at work. Some of those are beyond our scale, our own choices, but they're affected by the world around us, and they still can be broken down to the pervasive pain that's the result of living in a sin-saturated world. That's the world we're in. It's one of the reasons why the spiritual battle we talk about in church, why seeing people come to Christ, their lives transform, not just as an individual level, but in a community level or in a church level or in a family level, is so important because real people in real time are getting really hurt by sin. 
It's not an imaginary thing. It's not something that's irrelevant or distant religious talk. It affects every person you know every single day. And here we're told, and throughout Romans, and in the chapter in Romans, that all of creation aches and groans for the return of Jesus in the end of this era. These are the words of it in verse 22, Romans 8. Paul writes, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for it is in this hope that we are saved. My point here is pretty simple. Please understand, God does not sin. God cannot sin. God doesn't tempt us to sin. God doesn't make sin itself good. And he doesn't make the results of sin become the best thing that could ever happen to you. God does not wave a magic wand and take terrible things that happen in the lives of people and make them into cotton candy. That is not what God does. Now let me push pause here for a second. Obviously, God can make bad things good. God does that. He does that when he transforms any individual, any one of us, taking us from death to life, filling us with his spirit. He does that when he heals, which he can and does continue to do. He does that when he gives new spiritual life, when we become a new creation. God can do what God wants to do, and he can do good things immediately out of bad things. But that's not really what this verse is talking about. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The reason I get a little animated about this is because it goes back a long way in the church and other places. A misunderstanding of this verse. I was in university, obviously a long time ago, and I was uh, taking a course on motivational psychology. And the instructor who was there felt it would be really great to bring a guy in from a thing called Earhart Seminar Training. Some of you maybe have heard of that, Est is its name. And he felt that he could teach us all about motivation, what we need to learn about in order to become responsible with our own life. So the guy came in, he started talking about it. He said, well, there's only two things you need to know. First is this, that everything that happens to you is good. Everything that happens to you is good. And second, if it's not, you deserved it. Karma. It's kind of new age, self-help, all those kinds of things. It sounds ridiculous, it was offensive at the time, it's offensive now, and I want to suggest to you that variations of that, based on this verse, distorted, have fed into Christianity for way too long. And when we hear them, and we buy them, and we repeat them, we are hurting people more who are already hurting. Um, most recent maybe derivation of that theme. I've heard a couple times already in 2019, so I wander churches, it's part of my job doing that. And this particular year, it's an aggressive teaching where people are saying that God wants us all to have health and happiness, and if you don't have them, it's your fault due to your sin or your lack of faith. So if you have cancer, it's because you don't have faith. Is that really what we want to be saying to people? Is that the lesson we want to be teaching? And further, and this is within two of our own churches, which are solidly conservative evangelical churches, if you're a leader in the church and you don't agree, then you should resign and get leaders who have faith. That's not what God teaches. 
So let's get to what it is, because I beat the bad stuff enough. $24 million question is, what is the good that's offered in this promise? When God says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, what does he mean? Well, the key is this, good is always defined by God. Always. It's not what do we want, it's what God says it is. And in this particular verse, we're already told there's an immediate good and there's an ultimate good. The immediate good, he goes on and explains it for us in verse 29. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Those who God called, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's an ongoing, never-ending deal for God. The word where it says God works implies God's continual action. So in spite of the world around us, the mess that we're in, the pain caused by our own and sometimes other people's sin, generally and specifically, in spite of all of that, God is at work redeeming his people, bringing us into the likeness of his son, which for him is the best good into the likeness of his son. And in that process of doing his work, of having us conform to Jesus, he can take the worst things, the hardest things, which are in fact the worst things and the hardest things, and redeem good from those terrible situations. Specifically, God wants our identity, yours, mine, to be formed and founded on who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is doing in us. He wants us to learn what it means to be in God's family, to be a person like Jesus. You can pick up on that again, explained a little bit more in verse 14. Chapter 8, Paul says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, part of his family. You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear. You received the spirit of sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, but listen, if indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. That's why Paul will exhort us in Romans 12 when we get down a little further down this story. And he says we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can test and approve God's good, good, perfect, and pleasing will. God's best for us, God's best for me, God's best for you is when our character becomes like Jesus. That's the good that's in this promise. And the more we have that identity formed in Christ, the more certain our foundation, the, more, or the greater our hope, the better we weather the storms of life. And it's kind of interesting, if you read in verse 3 of chapter 8, it says, For what the law was powerless to do and that he was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful men to, make, to be a sin offering. God sent his son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful man in order to redeem us so that we could be made into the likeness of Jesus. An interesting little cycle. This is not a lightweight promise. So when Paul Olson was up here and he's saying some promises are hard, this is a hard, hard promise. A difficult promise. So how do we learn to become a person who forgives as Jesus forgave? Well, we're going to be in some pretty hard places. We're going to be looking at marriages that have fallen apart. We're going to be looking at divorces that have occurred, families that have separated, people who have wronged us in terrible ways. And God's going to be saying, I'm going to take that. It wasn't good. But I'm going to do some good. I'm going to help you to learn what it's like to be like Jesus. 
We're going to learn to live in faith. Imagine the struggles required to learn to live in faith. How do we become people who love regardless of circumstances when we're rejected, when we're hurt, when we're abandoned? What is the good God brings out of that? Does he mean that that was good that that happened? No. What he means is that we can learn to become like Jesus who knew all of that. We can learn to become like him. How do we become people who have peace when there shouldn't be any? To have joy and contentment in every circumstance, in every situation. This is a hard promise. Becoming like Jesus is an apprenticeship program. It's hands-on training, just-in-time learning. It's an, not an online course. Yes, you need the book. You need to read the book. You need to spend time in the book, which is the Bible, obviously. But it's also taking some time in the field. In real life terms, we have to learn to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of Hebrews said, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Look at him. Because our greatest good is always going to be finding our center in Christ. Our greatest good, our safest place is in his arms. Our highest joy is in claiming the redemption he offers. Our deepest satisfaction is being transformed by his spirit. God does not take painful, life-shattering things rooted in sin and tell us they are good, but he can and will redeem them for good so that we are remade into the image of Christ. That's his promise. And it's the most painful promise we're ever going to hold on to. because of the journey we have to walk to get there. But it's a promise that in the hardest times of our lives, God will never let go. In the most excruciating circumstances, God will change us so that we begin to understand the depths of his redemptive work when he gave up his only son to claw us back from the ravages of sin. That's his promise. Then beyond that, of course, that's the immediate promise that God will do good through this. The more ultimate promise, of course, is heaven, an ultimate good, the day that's coming when we will be perfected in glory. So if you pick that up in Romans 8, when we read verse 17 earlier, it says, so if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. It goes on, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Or in the passage we're looking at specifically today, he says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, so they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We get to share in his glory. We get to experience the glory of Christ. More than that, he has this actually remarkable statement in verse 30, where he says, We are actually being glorified. Stated as if it's already occurred, already completed, already done. It's an amazing promise. It's shocking enough that Denny in his commentary in Romans says this is the most daring verse in all of scripture. That in your life, in my life, as we walk through these difficult things and we're struggling with them and we're wondering about them, we're asking a thousand questions about them. We're wanting the easy out on this promise, on this verse. And he's saying, no, you're going to walk through this. God is going to do his immediate good. He's going to remake you into the image of Jesus. But you, God sees you as if you're already perfected in heaven through that process. There is an end to this. There is an end that's coming. A guarantee that God will never 
ease up. God will never loosen his grip until the transforming work is complete in heaven. It's an amazing thing. We don't live there that much today in the sense that I don't think in church as much we talk about prophecy or end times or that kind of thing as much as we used to. But if this is going to be a good promise, if Romans 8, 28, the promise of glory, the promise of being glorified is going to matter to us, then sometimes it's helpful to keep our eyes on the end game. Sometimes it's helpful to remember that there is an end that's coming. Sometimes it's helpful to go to books like the Revelation of John and realize that all of this book of Revelation, the end times kind of thing, bounces back and forth between earth and heaven, earth and heaven, earth and heaven. And through it all, Spirit of God, as he's inspiring John as he's writing this, is saying, oh, by the way, look up here. Yeah, yeah, this is what's going on down here. This is what the earth looks like, and there's trumpets, and there's all these bad you know, things going on in Revelation. He says, but look up here in the throne room of heaven. Don't miss this. Don't miss the end game. Look here. I'm doing something great. Truly great. So for example, Revelation 21 in verse 3 says, the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. You'll be glorified. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He goes on a verse later and he says, and he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. and I will be his God and he will be my son. He will be my child. Keep the end in mind. God's promise is that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Our part, God, Jesus, have to be our most treasured possession. We have to love him. God's part, he calls us to himself in order to be conformed to the likeness of his son. In order to see this end result, which is glorified in heaven with him, our God is a redeeming God. He is a redeeming God. And the greatest example, the deepest reality, of course, is experienced through the redeeming work of Jesus who paid the price for our sin on the cross so that all of this that we're just talking about is true for us. He's in the process of redeeming us. And it's a redemption that's sure, that's complete, that's finished from a heaven's point of view, spoken of as an already done deal. But while we're here, while we're in this world, while we're living here in this place, it's a redemption that's still in process. We're being changed by God through hard things. We're told God gives good gifts to his children. He loves and demands that we appreciate them, that we live a life of joy in his goodness. But because we're not there yet, we're not in heaven yet, we experience the incredibly terrible results of sin, both broadly viewed and specific to our own life, and they are never good. Never good. And sometimes they're downright horrific. It's why we're in the fight we're in. It's why you fight this in your own life. It's why you fight for this in your family. It's why we fight for this as a church. We fight for this as a community. We fight for this throughout the kingdom of God. 
for his glory, for our good. It matters to him. It's important. But God in that process never lets go. Never lets go. Because God is a redeeming God. So his promise is that he can redeem for you even the worst things that happen in your life. But he doesn't do it by making bad, sin-filled things good. He does it by using it to conform us to the image of his son. To understand what the meaning and the depth of God's love really is. To create in us an unwavering identity that's centered in Jesus. And second, by guaranteeing that the job is done, heaven's on its way, hope has a reason. I remember sitting in a small group a number of years ago, told you the story uh, a few years ago in this church, I was listening to a friend talk who had had the most debilitating, grief-dominated year of her life. Small part of it, her husband had left her, she had a baby, the baby died, it was just a horrible, horrible year. I remember hearing her say in this small group, I could never give up my faith in Jesus. It cost me too much to keep it. That's what this promise is about. That's what this promise is about. It is the most painful promise you will ever hold on to. It is the most excruciating lesson you will ever love. And it absolutely does not trivialize the real pain that you've experienced or you might be in today. Here. It's a promise that costs us everything to affirm. My hope, my prayer for you today is it's a promise you'll have the courage to claim. And if you need prayer today because you're in one of those places, if you need prayer to hear, to see how God can work in and through you through that difficult thing, there's a prayer team that's going to be up here during this last song. And I encourage you to have the courage to talk to them. To let somebody else in. This is a promise that is too large, too hard to carry alone. Let's pray together. Father, it's a promise of you, and the promise is great. It's actually quite spectacular that you would conform us to the image of your Son, and that ultimately be in you, with you in glory, but not just with you, actually be glorified. What an amazing, mind-blowing kind of a thing. But the fact is, it is so incredibly hard to claim this promise, understanding it. So we need you in every sense. We need your spirit to give us courage. We need your spirit to move us to see reality and to drive us to our knees in front of you. Father, make us into the image of your son. It's something we pray, it's something we say, but sometimes we take that far too glibly, far too lightly. But today again, we tell you we want to grab this promise ultimately for your glory. Amen.